Women make up 70% of the healthcare workforce, but only 20% of its leadership. On her story, we'll explore the careers of bold and influential women from Silicon Valley to Capitol Hill and learn how they've overcome the odds. This is Her Story, a program where we explore what's beyond the glass ceiling. Welcome. Today, I've got Dr. Namisha Kalia with us, and I'm so excited to have you here. We go way back, which I'll I'll get to in a minute, but thanks for logging in uh, to Her Story. My name is Christy Ebong. I'm with Define Ventures. We do early stage digital health uh, investing in, in, in VC. And I'm actually also an advisory council member for Her Story and super excited about what we're building and also to have Dr. Kalia here today with us. Mish, Talk to me a little bit more about, you know, your background. We actually go way back to grad school. We did our MPH and MBA together. This is before public health was sexy, if we can dare say that now with COVID, that the mainstream is using all this public health terminology and, and everything. But give me a sense of what you're working on, what got you to where you are today. Gosh, it's, it's been a long journey, it feels like. You know, I think the roots of it or the foundation of it's really my parents and they moved here um, to the U.S. when I was eight years old, and I have two younger siblings who also were born abroad and then came into the U.S. So I think the foundation of everything to me, no matter where I have gone and will continue to go in life, always goes back to kind of remembering where my roots were and how hard I watched them work coming to the country, not knowing much English, and then not having much money and having three kids they were responsible for. So kind of puts it into perspective for me, right? No matter what you're going through, it's never going to be as hard as what my parents face or what other people might face. So I think that's the foundation of it. But yeah, I've been working in medicine for a long time, as you know, (laughs) and public health. Yeah. And what got you interested in going into medicine? Christy, I know you've met my family. They're all a bunch of nerds, but my dad works for NASA. So I grew up around science and just loved it. Like learned about like drag forces and aircrafts early, early on. Right. And and so science is also always an interest of mine, but I knew I wanted to work um, with people individually and be able to help them individually. And medicine just had called me. Like I, I think at eight years old, I knew I wanted to be a physician. I knew that if I went into medicine, I could move or live anywhere in the world and my skills would still be translatable or helpful to that population. That's what really drew me into medicine and public health. That's so exciting. And I know that um, one of the things you and I have spoken about in the past is just how much your your family life and family culture supported you, even as a woman being a little bit undaunted, I would say, and, and kind of charging ahead in, in, with what you've accomplished. It's been really impressive. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm the oldest, as I said, and I didn't grow up with like traditional gender role conformities. I My dad cooks so I was with him in the kitchen, with my mom in the kitchen, and my mom worked in finance, so she taught us about taxes and stuff, and my dad would also teach us. And and they never put limitations of, this is what you're kind of expected to do. So I think the three of us grew up just kind of relying on one another, talking through it and sharing ideas with one another, and having these parents that were just very, very supportive of anything we wanted to go into. Very practical parents, like didn't give us advice of, you know, yes, go pursue this interest that you have that you learned how to sketch now and become, (laughs) but also very, very supportive of whatever we wanted to do. I love that. I remember in grad school at at Hopkins on the weekends going to to your folks to to study and to get some really, really good cooking. And (laughs) 
<laughs> always feeling that this intellectual curiosity was pervasive in your family of origin, which I just found so incredible and also heartwarming because they're warm, kind people. And it makes a lot of sense how, how you've gotten that support to get to where you are now. It, it makes such a big difference. I think having the family that you have or the family that you end up adopting of people that are around you that can just nurture your curiosity and, and not put limitations on you. I think anything that you want to do, you really can, especially if you have the people around you that, that will continue to say, okay, yeah, you want to do this? Like, how can we help? What can I do to help? Do you need to talk through anything or I'll help you look at programs that could get you to where you want to be? So yeah, absolutely. Makes such a big difference. And then tell me a little bit more. You've chosen a bit of an unconventional specialty path and going into, and, and I think you've done, if I, if I recall correctly, some type of fellowship or work in both preventive medicine as well as occupational medicine, which mm -hmm. might not be uh, as mainstream in terms of knowledge to the broader population. But talk, to, talk us through a little bit that thought process. A, what is it that you work on? And then B, what made you think of it or what made you want to, to invest your career in that? Early on, again, I, I knew I wanted to go into medicine and I really liked public health. I didn't necessarily know that what I was interested in was truly like population health because I, I didn't know that terminology when I was young, right? But growing up, I knew I wanted to work with a population. I knew I wanted to help them really to live their fullest lives. So physical well-being, mental well-being, like the, the full gamut of well-being for individuals. So I thought I wanted to go into infectious disease. And then when I learned about the day-to-day, -day, what my life would be like in infectious disease, I thought, you know what? That's not exactly what I want. I don't necessarily want to be working in a hospital setting, in a practice setting. What I want to do is population health. And that's why I chose Hopkins to come to for my MPH and my MBA. The MBA really tied it all in for me because I think if you want to be a healthcare leader in order to get any of your ideas across, if you can also back it up with the, the financial aspect and the financial win-win for all parties involved, the more successful you're going to be. So I, I was fortunate enough to get into the MPH MBA program and, and attend it with you, Christy, and then also did my occupational medicine fellowship at Hopkins. So after internal medicine, my fellowship was in occupational medicine. And and this field really looks at a specific worker population. So whether it's with a company or a subsect, like firefighters, for example, so not a company, but a, a general population and says, what are the specific risk factors that these workers face that maybe no other ones do? And how can we best protect these workers? So again, the same principles that I, I, I knew I wanted to apply throughout my career early on were actually much more specific to occupational medicine. So right now I am the current um, chief medical officer for GE. And so my patient population is essentially the around 195,000 employees of GE. And so, you know, I, I take that with, a, you know, a, a lot of responsibility and, and want to make sure that we're providing the absolute best resources we can to help our employees with physical well-being, as I said, mental well-being, financial well-being, and all the gamuts of, of their lives that we that we can help with. And COVID's definitely tested our capabilities, let me tell you. But yes, that's that's kind of what occupational medicine is and, and what I do day to day. That's remarkable. I want to dive deeper into the Ahmed side of things in your yeah. current role, but I want to take a moment to acknowledge the infectious disease background that you have, because I don't know if you remember this, but back in grad school, there was a photo contest that yeah. a lot of our <laughs> clinical and public health colleagues submitted photos. And for those listening, 
Misha, Dr. Kalia, submitted a photo of probably one of the most disgusting things I've seen in my life. <laughs> it was a parasitic worm that was how long? Maybe a foot long? Yeah, a foot long. Yep. That you had extracted from someone's body. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. From their bottom. It is a child, actually. So the mom came in saying oh. that my little boy, he's just been itching. He's really, really uncomfortable. And again, one of the first things you check for in underdeveloped um, nations is parasitic worms. And sure enough, did a physical exam and you could actually see the head of the worm. So you have to very, very, very carefully. Now, I mean, took a pencil and very, very, very carefully extracted it. The worm was still alive. We captured it in a jar and we had the mom, she was crying because of relief, holding the child and the worm. Uh, and that's the picture that I submitted. <laughs> It, yeah, it's right. something you cannot unsee, but no, we're grateful for, <laughs> we're grateful for your clinical expertise on top of your professional stature there. But I, I think I still have a picture of that worm actually somewhere in my archives, but, um, <laughs> it's a, it's a good memory Dr. Kalia shows up all, all professional and smooth. And then I say, well, I know when she pulled a, a massive worm out of someone's bottom. So I love that story for the humanness of it. No, none of us are immune, but I, I want to dive back into the Ahmed perspectives because it was actually funny when you and I were going to catch up and, and talk about and prep for this conversation. I caught you in the middle of the changing federal mandates around COVID vaccination and uh, when you have 195,000 people and their families kind of dependent on the imperatives that are coming out and that you're managing from a workplace perspective, I can only imagine that's probably equal parts clinically challenging, politically challenging, professionally challenging. Talk to us a little bit more about the intersection for you of, of medicine and, and what your thought process is on how do you lead in these uncertain times and kind of provide that leadership to almost 200,000 employees. You know, I think when I was going through the interview process for this role, the CHRO of the company asked, I thought, a really good question. He's like, you know, I've met lots of doctor, physician leaders, and some of them really see themselves as business people. Some of them really see themselves as the policy folks. And then some of them really see themselves as clinicians. Which one would you say that you are? And I had to think about it. And I was like, I, I think I'm definitely still a clinician. At the end of the day, my roots go back to, I want to do the best that I can for my patient. And all of these extra little like public health, you know, the epi and biostats that we learned and all the extra little skill sets, the business skill sets, those are only to augment the best delivery of care for my patient. So I keep that in mind all the time, right? Like the mandates change all the time and we have to focus the clinical team and the medical team certainly very much focused on how is this going to impact our employees and this time has been especially challenging because there's been a, such a political overtone to the virus, the vaccines, the boosters, the implications, the side effects. So all of that, managing that, I think the, the most effective or the feedback that I received from employees, the most effective communication is not necessarily the formal communication that comes out, like the Q&A with Dr. Kalia. It's the emails that I get one-on-one or when an employee will ping me out of the blue and say, I have a question. I, I really need to get answered like about, should I really get the vaccine doc? Or like, I'm really scared about this. Those are the most impactful. And, and I think that's what I actually enjoy the most too. So for me, it's still relatively easy because I, I know why I went into this and constantly remembering that helps. <laughs> 
I'm sure. And I'm sure these times help you to constantly remember that. Yes, um, they do. <laughs> I love that though. I love that principle of going back to what you know in times of mm-hmm. uncertainty and what you know is caring for people and caring for people yeah. clinically and medically and mentally. And I think that's really powerful for all of us to remember, right? Is go back to, to our own superpowers and start with what we know in times of uncertainty. Yeah. I still have my personal statement from medical school. And I wrote that personal statement. I think I was the most optimistic I'd ever been in life. You know, I wanted to change the world and I wanted to take care of communities. I, I go back to that because I think that's kind of how I want to remain. It's so easy to get jaded and it's so easy to get exhausted and just feel, especially during this time, right? I, I go back to that quite a bit. No, I love it. I mean, I think this has been a time of, of reverence and, and remembering while navigating so much of what is new. Because I remember back when we first met talking about what if and when there's a pandemic or actually it was an yes. epidemic and then God forbid a pandemic. Right. And it was theoretical, right? Or it was rooted on stuff that had happened, you know, centuries prior. And we talked through those things with the gravity of, of seriousness when it was something beyond the imagination, I think, of more the broad general public. And so it's been really interesting to see how those principles that you, that you learn in a setting where you're in than just the one-on-one delivery of care. I'm grateful for the work that you're doing. Oh, no, thanks. It's it, There's so many facets. My brother and sister, for example, are some of the frontline healthcare workers, right? The firefighters, the EMT, those folks that are there on the frontline every single day, incredibly, incredibly brave. Yeah. And you're right about, you know, how we talked about pandemics for a while. We talked about epidemics for a while and still how relatively unprepared I think we were when it actually came to. And that's what's shocking to me because I, I get scared about what would happen if this were to happen again. Because I can tell you, most companies have a disaster management team or crisis management team that have laid out plans for these types of situations. And yet when we arrived here, none of those were, we didn't even look at those. It was just kind of like, just go, just go. We got to figure this out as we're going along. So it is interesting. I want to go back and look back for a minute, you know, 10 plus years ago when we met we were not married. We didn't have children. And I remember talking about it. And I remember, you know, one of the things that you and I discussed before having families was, well, am I ready? Is my career in a place where I can do this and be set up to succeed? And that obviously has a lot of shades of gray. And I remember teasing you that you already had quite a few letters after your name. And if you weren't ready, none of us were. And now you (laughs) have, you started your family. You have a child. It's so exciting. She's gorgeous and so, so fun. Talk to me a bit about how that experience has impacted you professionally and how you navigate a your work and and your perspectives on on navigating this professional journey as a woman. It changes you. Becoming a mother completely changes you. I think your perspective on life changes in terms of I I always thought I mean, and I do. I love my career. I love working. But when you have this little two-year-old tugging at you and demanding attention. You cannot be sitting at your computer. You really start to question, like, I I do love my work, but my gosh, like, I love spending time with this little person. And they're only going to be this age for so long. And they're only going to go through these little milestones for so long. So you do start to question it. The, The best thing I think I've been able to do, and this has been hard, is ask for help and try to be really authentic with your colleagues and with even your managers in terms of where you are and what you need. That's a challenge. It's, it's been really, really hard. And, and I, I'm still developing it. But 
initially, I'll tell you, for example, I was working in an academic center when I first had her. And I remember feeling so guilty for taking six weeks. I had a C-section. So taking the full six weeks that my OB was telling me, you know, you need to have six weeks to recover. And I just felt so, I'm never taking that length of time off. And then I even had colleagues that were calling me and I won't forget this three weeks in. So my incision was still hurting, barely able to ambulate, but still in pain and saying, you're probably going to be judged for this. And I was like, what kind of like profession is this that we're being judged for just letting our bodies heal and recover. And so after that, I was like, no, 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 this is not going to look, I I know I work hard. I have to just at least try to plead my case. Like there's a reason I'm taking six weeks. It's not just to do nothing. It's just that I have to recover in order to be able to function when I get back. So I remember having that conversation with my manager, the chair of the department at the time, I thought maybe it would be taken in a negative light. That is a long amount of time, Dr. Kalia, like blah, blah, blah. But instead it was a very supportive environment. You know, first of all, he's a man. So he's like, I cannot personally say I know what you're going through, but I can tell you, I can provide help you with resources during this time. So you let me know what you need and we'll make sure it's there. So that was like one of the first times. And so I was pretty well into my career at that point. And that's like the first time that I felt like I, I'm at the point where I physically can't even get up. And that's why I'm asking for help. I should have come to that point a long time ago and I didn't, but I did. And I'm glad I did because it was, it was received well and it was received in a very supportive manner. And so now I feel much more open to being able to discuss like when she's sick or when something else is happening in in our families or in our lives and just saying like, hey, this is what's going on. So I found that, (laughs) I know most people, some people are probably really good at it. It's been a learning experience for me and, and a real balancing act, I think. I appreciate you sharing that so much. And I think what's actually very interesting is this is a thread I've pulled on in other conversations as well. And it often comes down to a fear of asking for help. And then my next question is, where does that fear come from? Where does that, what is it? What are we afraid of if we ask for help? A, we're afraid that someone might say no. And then we're stuck in this really difficult situation. And B, we also, I think, have historically lacked women in leadership positions that can say, no, no, this is normal. In fact, I know folks, my sister-in-law from Sweden being one who would think six weeks off only is absolutely insane. And you should have much more time. I think there's really reasonable evidence out there, especially after a major surgery and caring for, for a newborn. But I think that what's really interesting is if we pull on that thread of asking for help and the worst case scenario is someone says no or causes problems, then what do we do with that? Then we make decisions for ourselves of where we need to be to get what we need. I guess you could call it owning your power. They're knowing, mm-hmm. like you said, you said, you know, you work hard, you know what you brought mm-hmm. to the table and you deserve to have that support. So I, I'm grateful for your story because I think it will be helpful to a lot of other women. No, I'm glad. You know, I, I try to think about that now, especially the team members that I have that are undergoing fertility treatment, starting a family, thinking about starting a family and, and just trying to be very cognizant of the support that they need. I, I think women especially need to be huge advocates for one another and normalizing the other part of life that cannot be ignored. Um, And men, I think the story you tell about your dad working for NASA, but also cooking at home and and elevating, you know, you and your siblings professionally is it shows that there are different playbooks for how to support each other and, and for men to advocate for 
for women in this context as well. And so I think it's, it's a, it's a really interesting story. And I'm hoping that this next generation can benefit from that and, and that we don't go into it saying, well, we had to do it. And so you should too. No, absolutely. In fact, I would say, you know, one of the things that I, I know, you know, I'm, I'm going to be teaching my daughter is question things. Don't go with just the status quo. I think for so long, many of us said, okay, well, for me, for example, okay, well, I'm a physician, you know, I went through medical school and, and residency where you tough it out. Like you worked 80 hours, you worked a hundred hours, you tough it out, get a few hours of rest, and then you go back to work and that's it. So I, I think what I'm going to be telling her is question things and don't be afraid to ask, like, why is it this way? And why can't it be this way? And not be afraid to do that. Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm so grateful for that. Talk to me a bit more about how your opportunities or challenges in the medical and clinical world, or even in the professional world in terms of being, you know, C-suite leader at a, a major company, having 200,000 employee lives under, underneath you. How have your challenges maybe felt different because you're a woman or what difficult decisions have you had to make along the way? As we kind of talked about before, I think like inherently, I didn't necessarily go into it thinking, oh, because I'm a woman, it's going to be harder. I wasn't raised that way and wasn't raised to think that it's going to be any different for me than it is for my brother. But I will tell you, there have been times specifically in my life, and I know in general, there are, are lots of other women that don't feel that way. Close friends of mine, even that because they've had different experiences one of the things that happened to me early on in my career, I remember I would speak up and say something during a conversation. It was relatively ignored. And I was like, that's okay. You know, I'm junior faculty, no big deal. I get it. But then the same exact idea would be mentioned by a male colleague of mine. And this happened repeatedly. And then by the way, when he said it, it was like, that's a great idea. I'm not going to use his name, but that's a great idea. So I was like, okay, well, that's, that's fine. The first time, second time. And then it just kept happening repeatedly. I was like, you know what? Why is this happening? I, I don't get this whatsoever. First of all, like medicine, it's changing a little bit, but it, you know, it's a very traditionalist kind of infrastructure. So there, there is some kind of that undertone, but I spoke to a couple of my female mentors about this experience. Cause I was like, I don't get it. Like, am I not like, I feel like I'm enunciating. I'm saying it clearly, succinctly. And they were like, it's, it's none of that. And they were like, listen, one of the things you're just going to have to accept is you're likely going to have to work like 10 times harder, especially in, in this field than your male counterparts. And that's just, just accept it. And I was like, okay, well, you know what? As long as I know what the, the playbook is, that's fine. And so I did, I, I think I took it on as a challenge and said, okay, you know what? I will. So what I'll do is not just articulate my ideas, I'll also come with evidence to support it and be able to, if, if anybody wants me to share it with them, I can share the, a deck with them of like what I've done, background research. So I did. And finally, after some time, I think I cracked that little egg and was able to get some respect <laughs> was heard. I love that. Part of the reason I'm smiling or laughing as you're telling this story is because I remember calling you after giving birth to my first child. And I don't know if you remember this, but I had some really rare complications from my epidural. And it took the top tier academic medical center here in San Francisco that had the best talent is nationally ranked in so many specialties. 
It took them almost two weeks to figure out what had happened. And I described this to you in about one or two minutes. And you said, oh, I think it's this thing. And you were right. <laughs> and that was just one of those funny moments where I remember thinking, yep, Misha is one of the most brilliant physicians that I've ever met, which I've known since I met you. And so it's even more ironic that you would speak up and not be heard or not be taken seriously, particularly earlier in your career, but I'm sure still today. And I think a lot of women feel that way. And you know what? If that happens, like work harder. To be very honest, sometimes that's the world we live in. And so work harder, polish up your skills so that you're more articulate, so that you can perfect the data that you're bringing to the table and be prepared for the meetings well in advance. Not that you shouldn't be, but I think it may just elevates your skill set even more. Is part of the reason you say to work harder because to try to fight the machine or fight the realities of what is all the time can just be exhausting? Or what's the, I guess, what's the trade-off with when do you speak up? When do you, you know, try to, to change the circumstances? Or do you just know that those things take time? And so focusing on yourself and what you can control is, is preferable. I think you, you take on the challenges that you know are worth taking on. So it's not going to be every single thing, but they're going to be two or three probably major issues or major discussions that are happening that you know are going to have a large impact to, to whatever the decisions that are being made in the company or to the patient population. And so when you take on those challenges, that's what I put my effort and focus on and say, okay, I'm not going to take on every single thing, you know, for, for most part, like these are just day-to-day decisions that aren't going to impact much, but these two or three things I'm very passionate about. So I do want my opinion to at least be heard because I think there's a lot of, to, uh, I have data to support it. And those are the things you'd focus on. Again, I think it only makes you better as a leader to do that amount of background work anyways, to show up. So if I, if I were to sum it correctly, you're saying that the world is the way it is. And so if we can accept that, but choose our battles and how we incrementally work to change it and, and yes. not deplete ourselves along the way, that then we can be more powerful versions of ourselves while, while also making an impact. 100%. And, and, and be your authentic self. I think that's one thing I've learned very recently, right? Be your authentic self. Don't be afraid to speak up and say, hey, I'm, I'm really struggling right now because of this. This is what's going on. And so we may not meet this deadline, but you know, I, I have a plan. Like We can get a couple of other folks to pitch in and then we'll be fine. I think those are the things that women are, at least in, in my circle, are very, very hesitant to speak up on. Many times, you know, I think it, it also stems from many of them know that they've had to work 10 times harder or, or a lot harder to get to where they are. They've had to deal with a lot, maybe put off a lot, balance a lot to get to where they are. And so they see that as a threat to their identity if, if that role is taken away or if that's taken away. It's really like an identity threat. I think that's why they're afraid to speak up. But moving forward, we have to think that if we don't speak up, the next generation is going to go through the exact same thing. And it's our responsibility to try to make it easier for them by speaking up, by normalizing these kinds of conversations. I love that. What's interesting about taking that responsibility seriously and normalizing these conversations is that 
I feel like it's easier to do the further along I get in my career. Like I've actually earned my keep a little more. And so that means something. I think it's difficult when you're in your 20s, when you're in your early 30s, if you're coming from any underrepresented background uh, in a mainstream industry to speak up because the costs are high and you don't necessarily have a substantive, you know, background Rolodex uh, set of experiences to fall back on if, if that's questioned or not appreciated per se. So it's something I think about a lot as, you know, as we progress throughout our careers is like, what's that, that tolerance level for advocacy, um, and for being outspoken while also, you know, focusing on what we call here at Define GSD and just making things happen. And so I appreciate your candor about that. And I, I completely agree in terms of our responsibility. Yeah, I, you know, I'm now a mentor, which I is like one of the best roles I have of an organization called Biomedical Science Careers Program at Harvard. And they specifically encourage underrepresented um, minorities to get involved early in their career. So even middle schoolers can get involved in high schoolers and lots of college students and medical students. So when I have people in my mentorship group that kind of speak up that I can hear, they want to say something. So I'll encourage them, like, you look like you want to say something. So go ahead and, they, and they'll speak up and say, I don't know what we're talking about is actually applicable in my community. In the Native American community, you know, this is how it is. Or in the Latin community, this is how it is. Or in, in my town where I come from, this is how it is. And I encourage that. That is exactly what we need. We need you to speak up. Please do. Because... We design these clinical trials with a very kind of narrow lens of how we know what we know. And we're, we're not as inclusive as we need to be. We're not taking every perspective into account. We should be because then we know that the medications that we're testing are actually going to be applicable to all the different populations that we want to serve. So I love that I'm seeing that a little bit more and I just encourage it every time I do. Yeah, I think you're right. There's a really healthy appetite now more than ever, which is just, it's heartwarming. And then it encourages more people. So there's almost this whole momentum. Yes, like positive feedback. Exactly. Yeah, it's a positive feedback loop. I want to look back a little bit on advice you've been given along the way. What is some of the worst advice or what is one of the worst pieces of advice that you've been given? And did you follow it? Did you not follow it? Talk us through that. Again, I think in medicine, especially, you're kind of taught to follow the status quo a lot. And so I was kind of told, you know, we just kind of follow along. Don't ask too many questions was kind of the exact. You just kind of do as you're told and go along. And I did follow that for a long time. And then you get to a point where you're like, this is just not working for me. So here are the two options that I have. Either I leave the profession altogether because that's the point where I'm at or I just say, okay, well, you know, what have I got to lose? Let me just be open about like what's really going on and see where that gets me because I'm at that point. We shouldn't have to get to that point to say something, but I think that was the worst piece of advice. I think we should be encouraging at every level folks to question why the system is the way it is and whether it can be improved. What's stopping it from being improved? So, yeah. Absolutely. We're grateful for your leadership on that. (laughs) So Misha, if you wrote your story, what would you title it and why? Oh, okay. I think I know. So one of my colleagues actually got me a shirt. Christy knows I'm 5'2". It's a shirt that's a small but mighty. And, and um, she, she got it for me. I love it. I wear it all the time. But I, I think I would title it small but mighty. And, and not just because I'm, I'm tiny, but I think also I've learned that, that it's the small thoughts 
and actions and then the the actions that become your habits it, it the the habits that become your character and work ethic and your destiny it's the small day-to-day thoughts that lead to what you eventually are able to have in life and, and experience in life so it's it's the small but the mighty impact that it can have the small thoughts the small actions the small habits that people may think are meaningless, but they're really not. They add up to a lot and and can create incredible effects. And I think you're living an emblematic of that for sure. (laughs) So just to tie off, I know we're, we're coming up on time, but looking back at your career in medicine and population health, and now having almost 200,000 employees under you in your purview Mm -hmm. that you're responsible for during a global pandemic, what would you looking back tell a younger version of yourself? I think I would, I would tell myself to question things more, even more. I didn't have the like professional limitations placed on me, but I accepted a lot of things like, well, this is just the way it is. And I think that's one thing that I, if I could go back, I'd say, you know, you don't have to get to a certain stage in life to say, when I get here, I'll be able to make a difference. You can actually make a difference all along the way, as long as you're speaking up and providing insights. So I, that's what I would probably be telling myself. I I will tell my mini me that. (laughs) And she'll benefit from that. Definitely. I'm sure she'll also welcome it. (laughs) Anything else that we should tie off on or that you want to add for the group? No, I'm just so grateful for you inviting me to come. This has been such a pleasure. And if it's helpful to anyone at all, like all the things that I've learned throughout my life, I, I hope that it is. And I hope that people are more empowered to speak up and empowered to really understand how much their voice matters and how much their opinions and perspectives matter. So yeah, thank you. Great. Dr. Kalia, thank you so much for joining us today. (laughs) Thank you. Her Story is a podcast produced by Think Medium. For more leadership stories from inspiring women across healthcare, tune in every Wednesday. Please subscribe to Her Story on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you're listening right now. You can also view Her Story episodes in video and access exclusive content on our website at thinkmedium.com. Be sure to rate and review Her Story so we can continue bringing you insights from influential women across the country. If you enjoyed this episode, we appreciate you spreading the word to your friends, family, colleagues, and mentors who might be interested. For questions and suggestions, please contact us at herstory at thinkmedium.com. Thanks for listening.